Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Detective Waymond Allen has admitted, on the record, that the only reason Jennifer Jeffley changed her original story, which she had repeated five times to police, was because he convinced her that he knows she's lying because her story doesn't line up with Eva Mondragon's story. Allen convinced Jennifer that everyone was giving the same story except for her. By his own admission, he began feeding her information about the statements given by Eva, KD, Youngster, and the apartment staff. But the truth is, none of their stories match. None of them. But for some reason, out of all the witness statements, it was Eva's version that was accepted as the truth. According to the record, Eva was never considered a suspect. She was only a witness. A tool ultimately used to help convict Jennifer. But what did she actually say? Were her statements consistent? And were they the truth? This is Season 10, Episode 7, Eva. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Skystream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Skystream and broadband minimum speed 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus terms apply. I've told you before that Eva's statements, from her first oral interview at the scene all the way to her trial testimony, represent an evolution, throwing more and more shade Jennifer's way every time she speaks. Today, you're going to hear that evolution. And just as importantly, you're going to hear the major problems with her statements that should be ringing some alarm bells. We'll start with Eva's very first interview. Eva was interviewed at the scene on the day of the murder. This is the report from that first interview. Eva indicated that she kept this apartment after her mother moved out. She indicated that her mother now resides in New Orleans, Louisiana. Eva indicated that she met Jen through her mother. Eva indicated that her mother and the young Jen have a dope problem, namely crack cocaine. Eva indicated that last night she let Jen stay with her because Jen's mother put her out of the house. Sometime late last night, Jen's boyfriend, who she knew only as Youngster, came over to the apartment with his brother. Eva did not know the brother's name. Eva indicated that she doesn't want all these boys hanging around her apartment because she had already been warned by the apartment manager to quiet down the traffic. But since she was aware that this Youngster was Jen's boyfriend, she allowed him to visit. She indicated that they all fell asleep sometime last night in the apartment. She indicated that Jen left the apartment early this morning because she got a page and there's no working telephone in the Eva apartment. 
Eva was still asleep when she heard a woman screaming for help. At first, it sounded like it was coming from next door, but then she realized it was coming from the downstairs unit. Eva indicated that it was a woman screaming for help. She jumped out of the living room couch, and when she opened the door to investigate, she said that the two boys, youngster and his brother, followed her. They ran down the stairs and found the screen door damaged. A voice inside the apartment responded to Eva, saying that, quote, I fell down and hit my head. Eva said that she knows the older woman's voice and knew that it wasn't her. In fact, she indicated that it sounded like a black person doing a poor impression of an elderly lady. Eva knew something was wrong, so she ran to the apartment manager's office and notified them of the problem. Let's break down this very first statement, starting at the beginning. Right off the bat, she says that Jen is a crack addict. As I've said before, I can't say this isn't true, but I can say that there's absolutely no evidence to support this claim. She also implies that Monday night, the night before the murder, was the first time that she let Jen stay at her apartment. She says that Youngster and KD stayed over that night, and she says that Jennifer left the apartment that morning because she got a page and she needed to use the phone. She was asleep when she heard the screaming. Then, pay attention to the order of events and the details that she provides here. She says that when she realized the screams were from a woman screaming for help, she, quote, jumped out of the living room couch. And when she opened the door to investigate, Youngster and KD followed her outside. Once outside, Eva hears the voice from inside saying, I fell down and hit my head. Eva says that she knows Catalina's voice and knew that it wasn't her. She described it as a black person doing a poor impression of an elderly lady. She then knows something is wrong and she runs to the office for help. Immediately following her oral interview, Eva is then transported to the police station by an officer to give a written statement. The report says that she was kept separate from Jennifer after giving her initial statement. This is Eva's written statement, taken on the day of the murder at 2.04 p.m. at the police station. My name is Eva Marie Mondragon. I am a Hispanic female and I'm 23 years old. I have attained 12 years of formal education. I'm employed by Caligula XXI Club. I live at the Green Arbor apartment complex on Sabo and I have lived there since March of 1996. I live there with my four-year-old daughter, Hykia. A month or so ago, I met a young girl named Jennifer. She was with my mother, and she has been around later. Jennifer's mother kicked her out of the house the other day, and she asked me if she could stay at my apartment for a while, so I agreed. Jennifer has been there for the last few days. Last night, I was home, and Jennifer was there. We were watching TV, and about 11 p.m. last night, Jennifer's boyfriend, Youngster, came by to see her. He was with his brother, but I do not know the brother's name. I was on the couch and Jennifer was laying in bed. We watched TV and I finally fell asleep on the couch. Earlier this morning, I was still asleep on the couch when my pager went off. That was at 7.44 a.m. I looked at the pager and saw that it was a friend named Tommy calling me, but I did not call him back then. I just went back to sleep. A few minutes later, Jennifer came in and woke me up and told me that she was leaving, that she got page two and she was going to a phone. I noticed then that Youngster's brother was asleep in the chair there in the living room, and I just assumed that Youngster was still in the bedroom. Jennifer left then. Now, I want to stop right there for just a second. I have two things that I want to point out. Number one, if I was the detectives working on this case, I would want to know more about Tommy. Who is this guy that's paging Eva at 7.44 a.m. on the morning of a murder? And number two, notice here that she says KD was asleep in the living room. Jennifer, Youngster, and KD himself all say that KD was sleeping on the floor next to the bed in the bedroom. Both Youngster and KD have given detailed description of the moment they woke up and Youngster stepping over KD as he got out of bed. So why is Eva putting KD in the living room near her in a chair? Just something to think about for now. Back to the statement. A few minutes later, I started hearing a woman screaming. I was half asleep and I didn't realize what it was at first, and then I thought that I was dreaming it. Youngster then came in the living room and woke me up and asked me if I heard the screaming. I was awake then and realized that the screaming was coming from somewhere outside my apartment. It was probably a good 10 minutes that the woman screamed before I realized what it was. When we finally realized that it was coming from outside, I got up and went outside and down the stairs. Youngster and his brother came outside too, 
and they were behind me. I walked down the stairs and I could see over into my downstairs neighbor's patio area. I saw that the patio door was all the way open and the screen for the patio door was ripped away and hanging from the frame. I again heard the woman screaming. I hollered out, are you okay, are you okay? I hollered this several times and I could hear the woman continuing to scream and cry, but then it seemed to subside and go quiet. It was right after this that I asked the woman if she was okay. A voice from inside said, I'm okay, I'm okay. I then heard the voice say, I just fell and hit my head. When I heard this, I realized that this voice was too deep, that it was not the voice of my neighbor. It was too deep, and it was raggedy, and it sounded like a black person trying to disguise their voice as an old woman. Now, this segment of the statement has red flags waving all over it. First, let's look at timing. Keeping in mind that Eva doesn't know where Jen went to use the phone or who she called. She says that Jennifer woke her up to tell her that she got a page and she was going to use a phone. And then she says, quote, a few minutes later, she started hearing screaming. Now, we don't have an exact time for how long Jen was on the phone at Janet's, but considering the walk there and the fact that she talked to Craig, he hung up, she looked up the number to the phone company, called them, and then Craig clicked back in, and they had what seems like a pretty lengthy conversation, I would say that at least 20 minutes is a fair estimate, if not more. Now, being in and out of sleep could account for the estimate and time being wrong, but I'm just reading what the statement says. Jen leaves, and a few minutes later... The scream starts. Now let's look at the conflicts to her first statement, which she gave around an hour earlier. In her first statement, she hears the screaming and, quote, jumps up off the couch and goes to the door to investigate, and the boys follow her out, which actually fits with Katie and Youngster's statement. They both said that they were awakened by the sound of Eva opening the door and got up and saw her going out and followed her down the stairs. But in this statement, not only does she put Katie in the living room sleeping next to her, which I'm going to go ahead and call a lie, but she also says in this version that she's laying on the couch and hearing the screaming when Youngster comes into the living room and wakes her up. Now, First of all, that's not what she said happened an hour earlier in her first statement. And secondly, and more importantly, that's the second time in this statement that she tries to include now two witnesses in the apartment who saw her on the couch still sleeping during the murder. First, she says KD was sleeping in the living room with her, when he, Youngster, and Jennifer all say that he was sleeping on the floor in the bedroom. And now she says that Youngster came into the living room and woke her up while the screaming was happening downstairs. In both Youngster and KD's statements, which were taken in two separate interview rooms, they both describe hearing the screams and then Youngster getting up about the time he hears Eva opening the door. He then steps over KD, who was asleep on the floor next to him, and they walk out of the bedroom. Also, note here, because it's going to matter later, that Eva describes the voice she hears as, quote, too deep and was raggedy. Just keep that in mind as we move along. I also notice that Eva very specifically describes the screen door as, quote, ripped away and hanging by the frame. Jennifer never describes the door as hanging or dangling. She always describes it as laying flat on the ground, which is where it was after Truesdale arrived on the scene and jumped the fence. Eva, however, saw it dangling. Now That either means that it was dangling when she left to go to the office and it fell before she returned, or that she saw it dangling at some other time, like when it was first ripped off the frame. Now let's get back into the statement. I took off running to the apartment office to get help for the woman. As I ran off, I saw someone coming up in the direction from the apartments across the street. I was in such a hurry that I did not pay attention to who it was, but I just assumed that it was Jennifer coming back to the apartment. I got to the apartment office and told the management that the little lady underneath me needed help and was screaming and that they needed to call the police. They finally came with me back to the apartment. All three of the managers came at first, and they saw the maintenance man, and they told him to go get the keys to the old lady's apartment. When I got back to the apartment, Jennifer and Youngster and his brother was standing right there. She told me that she had jumped over the fence to the patio to check on the lady, and when she did this, Jennifer said that the lady looked dead, and there was blood all over the place. 
She said that she checked to see if the lady had a pulse, and she said that the lady was dead. I noticed then that Jennifer had a cut on her left hand. It was not bleeding at the time, but I could see the skin was up. I asked her about the cut, and she told me that she did it when she went to check on the lady. She mentioned that there was a vase there and had cut herself on that. The ambulance got there a little later, and then the police got there. When the police started coming, Youngster and his brother got scared and left. I do not know how they got over to the apartment the night before, and I do not know where they went. I believe that Jennifer knows where they live, though. Later, while everyone was there, Jennifer was whispering to me, trying to get me to tell the police that she was there when I was asking the old lady if she was okay. I do not know why she would want me to lie about that. I heard her tell police that she sent me to go get help, but that was not true. I went on my own, and Jennifer was not even there. I saw the maintenance man go into the old lady's apartment. The manager told him before to go get the key, and he had to unlock the door to get in. I saw another lady there leaving the apartment. She had a nurse's uniform on, and I heard that she had been trying to give the old lady CPR. I think that this woman lives in apartment number 127. I later came to the homicide office and gave Sergeant Williamson a statement as to what I saw today. I volunteered to give the police a consent to search my apartment, and I later took them back to my apartment and let them in. Here, Eva says that she saw someone approach down the sidewalk alley from the east as she was taking off for the office. She says that she assumed it was Jennifer. As I mentioned before, this lines up with Jennifer's first statement. She walked back to the apartment from that direction, and then she saw Eva at the stairs as she turned the corner. And also, like I've said before, if this wasn't Jennifer approaching, then I'll pose the question, who was it? No one has ever been identified as this person. Eva then goes on to say that she goes to the office to get the manager, and that when they return, Jennifer, Katie, and Youngster were all waiting outside. The manager and maintenance man both confirm this to an extent. Pam Wiley says that Jennifer was outside in the first few moments when she got to the scene, but she couldn't say with certainty that she was there when she arrived, or if she got there shortly after. But nothing about Katie or Youngster. Keith Truesdale says that even Jennifer were outside as well as one unknown black male. KD says that the boys were outside, but he's not clear on when they went outside. And Youngster says that he saw Keith jump the fence from inside through a window. Jennifer says that she didn't see KD or Youngster outside until after Truesdale jumped the fence. It's confusing, but to put a fine point on the issue, all of the statements agree that Jennifer was outside when Eva returned with Pam Wiley. None of the statements agree with Eva's that KD and Youngster were also outside. Eva then says that Jennifer told her that she had jumped the fence and checked Catalina's pulse while she was gone. This is when Eva says that she noticed the cut on Jennifer's hand. She says that Jennifer described cutting it on a vase. Jennifer in her statement described the object as an orange or red flower pot, and then later in her confession as a white object. Eva then goes on to say when the police arrived, Youngster and KD got scared and they left the scene. And then Eva completely throws Jen under the bus. She says that while everyone was there at the scene, Jennifer whispered to her to tell the police that she was there when Eva was asking if Catalina was okay. This is the statement and the order of events that Detective Allen assumed to be true, or at least he used it as the truth in order to convince Jennifer that he knew that she was lying. To review, these are the problems with the statement. Number one, it contradicts the statement that Eva gave to officers earlier in the same day. Number two, it completely conflicts with both Youngster and KD's statements, and it does so in a very big and important way. Eva is very clear to alibi herself using KD and Youngster, when in fact, they in no way alibi her. She says that KD was sleeping in the living room with her, and also that Youngster woke her up to alert her to the screaming. Neither of those two things are true. I think that the term red flag is overused, but it certainly applies here. Anytime it looks like someone might be lying, I always ask myself, what is the utility in this lie? For example, there's no utility in Jennifer saying that she jumped over the fence to check on Catalina. She doesn't have to explain away forensic evidence on the scene because she knows that she was inside later. That was confirmed by everyone. So there's just no reason to make up that detail. 
But there is a big, giant, massive utility in Eva making up a detailed story about how KD was sleeping in the living room and Youngster waking her up during the commission of the murder. It's an alibi, and it's a lie. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Detective Allen not only accepted Eva's story as the truth, but he also twisted facts and convinced Jennifer during her seven-hour interrogation that Eva, Youngster, and Katie were all telling the same story. He doesn't seem to have ever considered Eva as a suspect. His entire focus was only on Jennifer. In Allen's report on the interrogation, he states that Jennifer kept telling the same story, and he continually told her that he knew she was lying because of what Eva and Youngster had said. For example, he says at one point that he knows Jennifer wasn't present when Eva ran to get help because Youngster was there when that happened, and he says that Jennifer wasn't. But that's just simply not true. In Youngster's statement, he said that Jennifer was there during the screaming and when Eva ran for help. And this is when Jennifer starts changing her story to match what Alan is telling her that he, air quote, knows happened. And in his report, Alan writes about the explanation that Jennifer gave explaining why she was lying. Quote, Alan advised Jennifer that Eva told investigators that she was not present when she was first talking with the elderly female and that she had whispered to Eva to tell the police she was. Jennifer stated that she and Eva were talking when she was washing her hands in the apartment. Eva told her that their statements had to coincide and for her to stick to her statement and not let the police trick her or turn things around. End quote. Jennifer told Crime Watch Daily a similar story a couple years ago. Here's a short clip from that interview. Then what happened? They shoot us off and we went upstairs. Back upstairs, Jennifer says Eva does something strange. She gives her instructions on what to say to cops who will arrive momentarily. Eva allegedly tells Jennifer, You tell the police that we were all together. It's important that you tell them that we were together. Don't, don't give any additional information if they ask you. I didn't think anything of it, so I'm like, okay, but it was happening so fast, I didn't have time to question it. Why did Eva want you to say you were with her? She said our lives was in danger if we didn't say that we were together. How so? She never elaborated. She just gave me a basics of what she wanted me to tell the police. I'm under the assumption that we were all making the same statement. Detective Allen is completely ignoring the fact that Eva has changed her story from her oral interview to her written interview. And the fact that not only does her statement not line up with Katie and Youngsters, but the discrepancy should have been extremely alarming. But he ignores all of that and accepts her story as the truth, including the part where she says that Jennifer told her to lie for her. So leading up to Jennifer's final interrogation, Jen has told the same story five times. Katie and Youngster have both given statements that support her version of events. And by that time, police had also already spoken to Red Rock and Housen, who also confirmed part of her story. Eva, on the other hand, gave two conflicting statements and provided an alibi for herself that Katie, Youngster, and Jen all contradict. And yet when Eva tells Alan that Jennifer had told her to lie, he believes her. And when Jennifer tells him that Eva told her to lie, she is not to be believed. The day after Jennifer's arrest, Detective Allen returned to the Green Arbor Apartments and asked Eva to come in for another interview. Here's the report from that interview. This is where Eva puts the proverbial nail in the coffin for Jennifer. Remember, in her first two statements, she described the voice coming from inside the apartment as a black man impersonating an elderly woman. 
She says that the voice was too deep to have been a woman's. And now, listen to this. Eva Mondragon arrived and we accompanied her to her apartment number 58. Mondragon stated that she was scared to stay in her apartment and was staying at a friend's at the present. Mondragon stated that she had been thinking about everything that had happened and she stated that the more she thought about it, the voice that she heard through the door of the complainant's apartment sounded like a woman trying to disguise their voice. Mondragon stated she thinks it was Jennifer she heard, but at the time was so scared she could not tell who it was. Eva stated that when she came home last night, Youngster and some other of his friends were at the apartment and she ran them off. Alan noticed that the Polaroid photographs of Youngster and his brother KD were on her kitchen counter along with the visitor pass to the homicide division. Now that little detail is very subtle, but if I'm reading it right, what he's pointing out there is that these are items that he gave to Youngster and KD. And Eva is saying that they came by and she ran them off. But contradicting that, is the fact that those items are in her apartment, as though they had been inside hanging out. Now back to the statement. We asked Eva about Jennifer's clothing as she had changed clothes prior to her visit to the homicide division. There was a pile of dirty clothing in the bedroom floor, and we visually examined the clothing articles for signs of blood and did not see anything. We looked in the bedroom closet and the kitchen and did not find anything there of evidentiary significance. Alan asked Eva to give us a call in the event that she found anything that did not belong in the apartment. Eva stated that several young males had been over to the complex to see Jennifer, but she does not know them all by name. Eva stated that she was not familiar with anyone named Ernest Watson or Tim, nor Slow. We left the apartment and returned to the homicide division. So now in Eva's third statement, she says the voice, quote, sounded like a woman trying to disguise their voice, and that she, quote, thinks it was Jennifer she heard, which is quite a change from her initial statement where she said, quote, I realized that this voice was too deep, that it was not the voice of my neighbor. It was too deep and raggedy, end quote. Now let's quickly review what Eva has said and done in the first two days after the murder. She tells police that Jennifer's a crack addict, but says that she thinks she saw her returning to the apartment from Janet's as she was leaving to run to the office. She says that KD was sleeping in a chair in the living room with her and that Youngster woke her up after hearing the screaming. Both KD and Youngster say they were asleep in the bedroom when they heard Eva open the front door. She then tells Detective Allen that Jennifer told her to lie for her and say that she was present when Eva was yelling into the apartment. And then in a follow-up interview, she tells Allen that she was mistaken in her first two statements when she said that she knew the voice wasn't Catalina's because it was too deep and raggedy And now, she thinks that it was Jennifer's voice. So in a nutshell, she's given three completely conflicting statements. And in a written statement, she gives a false statement providing herself with a false alibi. And she threw Jennifer under the bus at every turn. And that takes us right up to the trial. Which is the next time that we hear from Eva, at least on the record. There were three elements to the state's case against Jennifer at trial. First and foremost was her confession. Secondly was Jennifer's fingerprint found on the outside of the patio door glass. And to put a neat little bow on the case, there was Eva's testimony. I'm only going to break down the relevant sections of Eva's testimony, but the entire transcript is posted on her website. The testimony begins with Eva giving all of her basic information. The prosecutor then moves right into her relationship with Jennifer. Eva says in the testimony that she can't recall how many days or weeks that Jennifer had been living with her before the murder. Dee Glaser, the prosecutor, then asks Eva about her living arrangements at the time of the murder. Eva explains that she worked at two different strip clubs, one on the southeast side of town, which is close to Green Arbor, and one on the southwest side of town. She says on days that she would work at the southwest side club, she would stay with her boyfriend Daryl, who lived over that way. Then the testimony continues with Eva breaking down the events of the morning of the murder. She says again here that she was sleeping on the couch in the living room at 7.45 a.m. when her pager went off. She read the number and went back to sleep. She's then awoken again, this time by Jennifer telling her that she got a page and she's leaving to go use the phone. Eva says that she then fell back asleep. And then came the screams. I'll read this next section directly from the transcripts. Eva. It was a little later after that that I started hearing screams and I thought I was dreaming it at first, and I dozed back off. 
And then it started getting louder. The screams started getting louder, and I just, I could make out what the screams were saying. It was saying, help. And then Jennifer's boyfriend, he comes out of the room. Glazier. Out of what room? Eva. My bedroom. Glazier. Okay. Eva. He woke me and asked me, did I hear what he was hearing, which was the screams? And I said, yeah. And we both just waited. Well, his brother was there too. He was asleep on the chair. And we all just stood there for a second to see if we could hear it. Well, hear the sound, the screams again. And we heard them again, so we decided, well, I said, let's go outside on the stairway. And we got down on the stairway, and we could still hear it, and you could still hear her screaming, help. This is a very detailed description of how Eva was still sleeping, thinking that she was dreaming the screams when Youngster came out of the bedroom and woke her up and asked her if she was hearing what he was hearing. KD was asleep on a chair, and they were all just standing there for a few seconds before they all went out to investigate together. Now, I want to read to you KD and Youngster's versions of the same events from their statements. This is what KD said. I hear the front door of the apartment open. I then heard Eva yell out, what's wrong? It sounded like she was at outside heading down the stairs. Youngster jumps out of bed and steps over me. I get up immediately and I'm walking behind him towards the front door of the apartment. I'm only a step or two behind him. So the thing that woke KD up was the sound of Eva opening the door. He's asleep on the floor in the bedroom next to the bed and Youngster steps over him. The first thing that occurs to me here is, What if he didn't hear Eva going out the door? What if what he heard was Eva coming in the door? And then she went back out after they woke up. Here's Youngster's version. Then the next thing I knew, I heard a lady screaming. This woke me up. When I woke up, it was just me and my brother. Jen was not in the room. I don't know when she left or how long she had been gone. I jumped up and stepped over my brother and opened the bedroom door. When I did, Katie kind of looked at me and said, What's up, Pharrell? I told him I didn't know and I walked out of the bedroom. I saw Eva open the front door of the apartment and run downstairs. I started out behind her. I saw that Katie was coming out of the room too. Again, Youngster also says Katie was sleeping next to him on the floor when he woke up. And according to him, Eva was opening the door as he walked out of the bedroom. And now, one more time, I want to read to you what Jennifer said about the sleeping arrangements in her statement. I got up and washed my face and brushed my teeth. Youngster was asleep on the bed. His little brother was asleep on the floor. Eva was asleep on the couch. That's three for three. KD, Youngster, and Jennifer all say that KD was sleeping in the bedroom, on the floor, next to the bed. Katie said he first heard screaming, then he heard Eva open the door, and then Youngster got up and stepped over him. When they got to the living room, he saw Eva walking out the door down the stairs. He says that he was just a couple steps behind Youngster. It sounds like Youngster didn't hear the door open the first time. He says that he heard the screaming, got up, stepped over KD, and goes out into the living room where he sees Eva opening the door and running outside. All of these statements are consistent, and they all present a flowing and logical narrative. And yet here we have Eva testifying, under oath, that KD was sleeping on the chair in the living room, and it was Youngster who woke her up to alert her to the screaming. Then they all went outside together, providing the perfect alibi. Let's get back to the rest of Eva's testimony. She continues on with a story about how the three of them go down the stairs to investigate the screaming. Glacer then asks Eva about her relationship with Catalina. Eva describes Catalina as sweet. She says that they speak to each other, quote, all the time. She says that they were pleasant and friendly with each other. No mention here of the fact that Catalina had been complaining to the manager about Eva about the traffic going in and out of her apartment. Eva continues on to describe getting to the bottom of the stairs and seeing the screen door dangling from the frame. But here she says she doesn't know if the glass door is open or closed. But in her previous statement, she was very clear that she could see that the door was open. 
She then goes on to testify that she yelled out asking if everything was okay, and she heard the voice saying she was fine, I just fell and hit my head. And Glacer doesn't ask Eva if she recognized the voice. She just moves on, and Eva says that she knew it wasn't Catalina's voice, so she ran to get help. She says that Katie and Youngster were standing outside when she left. Now that part of the story is hard to verify. There's no way to track Eva, Katie, and Youngster's statements about where they were when she left to get help because none of them match up. Eva says that she left them standing outside. KD says that they followed her out. Eva told them to go back in because she was worried about the traffic in and out. And Youngster's version is all over the place. You can't even make sense of it. But he also, like KD, says at some point that Eva told him to go back inside. The fact that none of the three accounts for this particular moment match up and neither KD or Youngster can even piece together a narrative that makes sense has me really starting to think that it didn't happen at all. All of their stories fall apart when we get to the moment when the screaming's happening. Eva continues on to retell the same story you've heard a hundred times now about going to the office, getting help, and returning with Pam Wiley. She says that when she returns, Jennifer's now outside with the boys, although in Jennifer's statements, the boys were not outside at that point. She hadn't seen them yet. And Youngster says that he saw Eva return from the window in her apartment. Eva testifies that she overheard Jennifer tell the police that she was with her when she was screaming to Catalina asking if she was okay. She says that that was not true. Jennifer wasn't there when that happened. She goes on to testify in front of the jury that Jennifer asked her to lie for her and say that she was there. Then she continues to pile on by telling of the cut on Jennifer's hand, which if you look at the cut in the photos on our website, you'll see it's more of a scratch than a cut. But here, Eva says that Jennifer told her that she cut her hand when she jumped over the fence, which is in direct conflict with the written statement where she said that Jennifer told her that she had cut her hand moving the vase off of Catalina's neck. At this point, the DA directs Eva back to her grand jury testimony from a few months prior. There was something that Eva testified to the grand jury that Glazer wants this jury to hear. But first, she had to play a little defense since she was bringing the grand jury testimony in. It comes out that to the grand jury, Eva testified that she was at work on the night before the murder, which she quickly explains away by pointing out that Eva didn't have a chance to review her statements before that hearing. And then she moves in for the kill. From the transcript, Glazer. When you testified in front of the grand jury, you were asked whether or not you saw Jennifer with anything in her hands or doing anything with her hands. Can you tell me what it was, if anything, that you saw Jennifer doing with her hands? Eva. Well, when I came back from the manager's office, like I said, she was standing in front of Miss Palomino's patio door and she was stuffing her, her hands was in her pockets and she was stuffing her pockets. Glazer. Do you know what it was? Eva. No. And with that, the prosecutor passes the witness for Cross. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Cross-examination starts out with something very alarming. Jennifer's attorney, Brian Coyne, asks to be provided with a copy of Eva's grand jury testimony and her written statement to police. We're in the middle of the trial at this point. And quite literally, Jennifer's life is on the line, and her defense attorney hasn't even seen the state's star witness's police statement. And almost worse than that, he doesn't ask for all of her statements, just her written statement. And you have to imagine that at this point, if he didn't have a copy of Eva's statement, he surely didn't have copies of KD and Youngster's either. He is in no way equipped for this cross-examination. Coyne spends a lot of time at the beginning of Cross comparing Eva's written statement 
to her grand jury testimony. I'm not sure what his end goal is here, other than maybe to simply attack her credibility. The downside, however, is that now this jury is hearing about all the incriminating things that Eva testified to in front of the grand jury. I guess maybe his strategy was to try to show the jury that Eva's out to get Jennifer. We learn from Cross that Eva told the grand jury that Jennifer's arms were covered with bruises as though she had been in a scuffle with someone, which is not true. That's not noted in any of the police reports, and the police took photos of Jennifer's arms and there are no marks on them at all. Coyne points out that there was nothing about bruises in her written statement, and Eva claims that she told the officers about it and they must have not written it down. Eva also told the grand jury that Jennifer changed clothes at some time that morning. And in this testimony, she acknowledges that that bit of information wasn't in her original statement. The cross-examination is hostile. Coyne keeps interrupting Eva and arguing with her, and Glazer keeps objecting and asking the judge to direct Coyne to let her answer the questions. I cannot imagine that any of this resonated with the jury. All he's doing is badgering a witness that the jury likely at this point sees as a good Samaritan. And he's introducing them to more incriminating evidence. True or not, it doesn't matter. These are statements that they otherwise wouldn't know about. Remember last week when I told you that Catalina's wallet was eventually found? Well, it comes out in Eva's testimony that it was found in her apartment. The details aren't broken down here in this testimony, and I'll be discussing the situation in detail later. But the long and short of it is this. The wallet was eventually discovered tucked into the coils in the back of Eva's refrigerator with no cash inside. Next, Coin asks about Tommy, the guy who paged Eva at 7.45 a.m. on the morning of the murder. Eva says that Tommy is a friend that she met through work at the strip club, and she doesn't know his last name. When asked why he would be paging her that early in the morning, she replies, quote, because he likes to disturb me. She claims that she never, quote, visited him. He was just a friend from work that pages her to disturb her. Here is where Coyne really drops the ball, which in my opinion is because he was woefully unprepared for this trial. He'd only minutes before this finally read Eva's written statement. He hasn't seen the report from her other two oral interviews, and he evidently hasn't read KD or Youngster's statements either. He breezes right past the whole waking up to the sound of screams. In fact, he doesn't even let her explain how that happened. He just tells her, from the transcript, quote, When you heard the screams, you went outside and you heard a voice saying, I'm all right. So he says it, and then he moves on to the voice that yelled back to her. And here Eva testifies that the voice was deeper than Catalina's, but she can't say if it was male or female. And then the rest of Cross is uneventful. Coin doesn't strike any blows, and in my opinion, he did more harm than good. During redirect, Eva tells the jury that all of the traffic in and out of her apartment was actually Jennifer's friends, not hers. And no one seems to question this, even though she had already testified that Jennifer had only been staying there a couple of nights, and she testified that she told Jennifer when she started staying there that she had already been complained about because of the traffic. But she puts this statement on the record, and in recross, Coin never touches it. And then we also find out that, according to Eva, Jennifer had told her that she was 18 years old, which honestly wouldn't surprise me knowing what we know. And then Glazer asks a series of questions aimed at reestablishing the fact that Eva is just a helpful witness. You stuck around and answered all the police officers' questions, right? You let them search your apartment, right? You told them about Katie and Youngster, right? Sanitizing her in front of the jury. And then comes recross, redirect, and another recross, and nothing new is brought to light during that process. The only thing in Eva's testimony that surprised me initially was that the DA didn't ask her if the voice from inside the apartment sounded like Jennifer. I thought for sure that would come out, until I realized that Jennifer's attorney didn't have the entire police file. And then it made perfect sense. With no forensic evidence or eyewitnesses of the crime, 
the state was forced to build their case around Jennifer's confession. That's really all they had. In her confession, she says that the man that actually killed Catalina was the one who mimicked the voice. And therefore, if Eva said that the voice sounded like Jennifer, it would actually hurt their case. Besides that, if Eva had testified that the voice sounded like Jennifer, that would have raised suspicions with Coyne, or at least I hope it would have, likely causing him to either impeach Eva with her written statement, which could have led to him requesting a copy of the report where she changed her story for the second time. The smart move by the state was to revert back to the original deep voice statement and keep the changing story suppressed. So what have we learned about Eva today? First and foremost, she's lying. She's lying about where Katie was sleeping, and she's lying about Youngster waking her up. She has created a false alibi for herself. And that makes me question everything that she's saying. And we also know that she was hell-bent on Jennifer taking the fall for the murder. And now that I've personally drawn the conclusion that Eva was not just a helpful witness, and that she's not trying to help find the truth, but rather she's trying to alibi herself and point the finger away from her, I find myself circling back to what Jennifer said. That Eva told her to lie and say that she heard the yelling back and forth from a voice inside the apartment. What if Jennifer is telling the truth? Which I think is far more likely than Eva telling the truth at this point. If Jen is being honest, then who's to say that Eva didn't tell KD and Youngster to tell the same lie? Think about it for a second. The one part of Eva, KD, and Youngster's story that no one can get right is the sequence of events when the screaming into the apartment occurred. Jennifer's there. Jennifer's not there. Jennifer's walking towards them. Red Rock and Housen are there. All of them are all over the place. We've been beating our heads against the wall for weeks trying to figure out how the screaming fits into the sequence of events, and we haven't been able to figure it out. Why can't anyone keep their story straight? Why didn't June Sage hear the yelling back and forth? How would someone flee the scene if the killers were still inside when Eva ran off and Jennifer was knocking on the door seconds later? Nothing fits. Unless we have one anchor in our story wrong. We've taken for granted up to this point that the yelling back and forth actually happened because three different witnesses said that it happened. But as I said, when you look at it, none of them said it happened in the same way. What if Eva yelling into the apartment never happened at all? The first thing that clued me into the fact that the entire event may have never even occurred was the statements given to police by the twins and their mom. Remember in Youngster's statement, he mentioned a pair of twins and their mother that were outside right after Eva and the manager returned. The police interviewed the mother and one of the twins. The mom's name is Ruby Sullivan, and her statement is posted on our website. In her statement, she says that she's walking across the street when she saw the managers and maintenance man run into the apartment. She said that sometime after Pam Wiley had made her way inside the apartment, quote, Two black boys came out of the upstairs apartment. They were both saying out loud, quote, Did anyone hear the woman screaming for help? They were saying that her screams were so loud that everybody should have heard her screaming for help. End quote. Ruby's 19-year-old daughter, Cena was also interviewed. She actually knows Youngster, and she said that after her mom approached the scene, Youngster came out of the apartment and walked over to her. She says in her statement, quote, when Pharrell and his brother stopped us in the parking lot, Pharrell asked us, quote, did we hear anybody scream, end quote. When I first read this, I immediately thought back to something my friend and FBI profiler Jim Clementi is always telling me to be on the lookout for when assessing someone for truthfulness. He calls it overselling, and that's exactly how this reads to me. Youngster and KD are overselling the screaming trying to make sure that everyone on the scene knows that they heard screaming. It's an indicator of deception. I believe wholeheartedly 
that when we put all of the pieces of this puzzle together, Eva's interaction with the fake boys from inside of the apartment never even happened. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. And Mike can be found at MurbGaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.